0: Chapter 7. Night and Day. My darling, I am so glad you were able to get down to see our little daughter every now and then. It sure is wonderful news that she is gaining and getting along so well. So, they have taken her out of the incubator. That is also very encouraging. I know you are very anxious to get her home, but since they are getting along so well with her, I think it would be well to leave her until you get strong enough to take the very best care of you and our sweetie. I hope you will not think I'm over here some 4,000 miles away trying to tell you how to take care of yourself and our baby. It is just that I love both of you so very, very much, and I do not want either of you to have any trouble that is possible to prevent. You've certainly had more than your fair share. Sounds like you've had more snow than for years and years. I hope it has not been so awful cold. Did I tell you? This morning, we took our first trip up on Green Mountain. We enjoyed it very much. It is almost impossible to imagine the beautiful green grass, the trees, vegetation, and the like up there, when it is so desolate and barren down here. Hope you and our sweetie are doing the very best. Good night, my love. Bob The trip up the mountain began before sunrise. Drowsy, the men dressed in a daze, made their cots clean, put on their boots, and stepped sleepily out into the cool wash of dawn as the sky spread in gently with the tide. Even the birds on the island were quiet this early, slumbering in the sand like landmines. None of them knew what to expect. They hadn't been given much warning about this trip up Green Mountain, that strangely vibrant peak in the island's interior. The night before, R.G. had been playing bridge in the tent with Bill, Kurt, and Buckley, when the colonel had leaned in through the tent flaps, telling them to get some sleep. They would need it, he'd said. Bright and early, they'd be going up to the mountain. No mission, no details, just that. Now, in the pre-dawn chill, they got in two trucks and drove inland, past the tent settlements of the Americans, past the outdoor movie theater and the new baseball diamond, and then kept on driving way beyond Georgetown, where the British families lived with their golf course spread out behind them. Until there was, quite suddenly, nothing. A massive desert of ash, barely even roads, the part of the island they hadn't seen yet. It was the morning of January 28th, 1945. They'd been on the island nearly a month, long enough to have learned not to ask why they were doing anything. They were just along for the ride. So many things made little sense to them. Their mission, first and foremost, but also each step along the way. The planting of the first tomato seed one week earlier had been especially strange. That morning, the CO of the whole island, the English governor and his wife, the Englishman in charge of the British cable office, and a few others among the top brass had all come out to the propagation beds for a photo, the professor saddling up beside them as well to get in the shot. To the hydroponics team, it had to be one of the most ridiculous pictures ever made. Here were these dignified leaders, wearing their fanciest military regalia, posing with serious expressions on their faces, all while standing in front of a tomato seed. Not a captured city or a sunken U-boat, but a tiny seed planted in some wet volcanic rock. Had they lost their minds? Or, to use the term the fellows on Ascension had coined for island-induced madness, had they gone rock-happy? Because that was just the first phase of the planting, the easiest part. The hydroponics team had planned to start by planting the seeds in the propagation beds, where the seeds would hopefully sprout and grow roots. Then, they would transfer the seedlings into plant beds, where the seedlings would bud, developing stems and foliage, right up to the point where they would be about to flower. Lastly, they would move the plants into larger growing beds where they would ripen into edible vegetables. But that was all weeks and weeks away, and if the island's leaders had known just how unlikely this project's success was, the guys figured they probably would have thought twice about that hasty photo. The hydroponics team hadn't even carved out all the propagation beds yet, let alone the plant beds and growing beds. And now that the seeds were planted in the first row of beds, they were up against a ticking clock. If they didn't construct the rest of the beds in time, those seeds would amount to nothing. They felt like chain gang members building a railroad while the train was already on the tracks. After those fancy leaders had taken their photo and walked off, the guys had worked all day long, hacking at the charred earth with shovels and spades and pickaxes. Then they'd had to reinforce the beds with an asphalt mixture to make sure the fluids wouldn't leach into the ashen ground. We have a right busy day and worked after supper and are going to work a few more hours tonight. R.G. had written Agnes, but still they were so far behind. And now this morning, for reasons unclear, they'd been woken before dawn to take a trip up to the top of a mountain, while so much work remained down below. The truck groaned on toward Green Mountain, rattling over loose rocks and divots. As they drove, the sun began tinging the skyline, so the mountain itself began to blush into view ahead of them. Blue, green, and hazy, Its sloped contours appeared mirage-like through the windshield of the truck. This sensation was only heightened by the fact that the mountain seemed to stay put the longer they drove, as if they would never reach it. Driving across the wasteland, they felt as if they might as well have been spinning their wheels, and the reality set in that the mountain was far larger than they'd ever realized. It really is up there, too, R.G. later wrote to Agnes. Some 2,800 feet rise in a relatively short distance. He never missed a day riding to her, But the last letter he'd gotten in return from his wife, in which she had told him about Agnes Gray being taken out of her incubator, had been postmarked well over a week ago. He knew the weather could hold up the mail, especially with the blizzards passing through North Carolina and Virginia. His mother and sisters had also written about possible coal shortages and how temperatures dipped below zero degrees all last week. Still, their letters had made it to the island. Only Agnes's had failed to arrive it was hard not to worry again. Upon reaching the base of the mountain, the trucks slowed. R.G. sat up and looked out the windshield. Nobody felt reassured by the roads carved into the slope. It was not a welcoming climb. With a slow acceleration, the trucks began the long, winding ascent, their windshields simmering in the sunrise. The road was as rugged as any I've ever seen, R.G. wrote. We had to back up on any number of curbs. There were no guardrails, no easy turns. The grooves of the tires of other trucks that had made the same journey before them were their only guide, and they followed these ghost trucks, hoping not to topple off the ledge and become ghosts themselves. This high up, they could look out the open windows and watch the rising sun slide silently over the whole of the island. Colors spread inside the truck, oranges and yellows, soft purples. They floated upward. They clenched their jaws in the meanwhile. As they climbed higher... The terrain began to transform around them. Jungle encroached on the roadway, and fog thickened in front of them. A surreal experience after so long in the dry dust. Overhanging passageways of leafy trees made tunnels through which the trucks eased forward, the leaves swiping at the sides and roofs of the trucks like barbecue mops dousing a hog. At steeper spots, they could look out the windows and see groves of thin trees leaning against the slope. They'd never seen trees grow like that before. Whenever the groves opened up again, RG saw the bare sky, the blurred ocean, and the rounded and triangular domes of rock and dust down at sea level. It looked like an alien planet, populated with ancient pyramids and dust-coated ruins of a civilization long banished from this world. When they finally reached the summit, color bloomed before them. They stopped the truck in a parking area beside a thick grove of bamboo, clenching the parking brake in place. The moment the truck's doors clunked open, Archie took a deep inhale of the fresh, fragrant air. What he and the others saw spread out before them was a scene so strange they felt almost dizzy at the sight of it. Up on the top of Green Mountain, he wrote Agnes, we found buildings, houses, barns, etc., gardens, fences, and all were very typical of an English countryside as we have seen in movies. It was a world in technicolor, everything bright and delicious and to be savored. The homes wore thatched roofs like festive hats, and the barns were red and quaint, bordered by white picket fences and bountiful gardens, all set up against a misty panorama of jungle, like a painted backdrop in one of the stage musicals Agnes had taken him to in their early days of dating. R.G. walked around, disoriented, amazed. It was, he wrote Agnes, impossible to imagine. The impossible green of the grass, the impossible dampness wetting his pant legs, the impossibly soft whir of insects, as if he and the rest of the guys were encased within a vibrant planetarium on the surface of the moon. They had considerable acreage up here too, he wrote, much more than you would imagine gazing up at it from below. The harsh reality began to set in. Here was everything the hydroponics team had been striving to create down on the rocks, a perfectly self-sustaining ecosystem. They'd all been so focused on nutrients, water, and plant life since their arrival on the island that they couldn't help but marvel at the miraculous combination of natural circumstances that would have allowed for such an ecosystem to thrive up here. But when they talked to the workers on the mountain, the men who made up the longtime residents of this garden village in the sky, they learned natural circumstances had little to do with it. This ecosystem wasn't created on its own. It was man-made. The real story of Green Mountain which the hydroponics team heard that day, had begun 100 years earlier, when a 26-year-old British botanist by the name of Joseph Hooker had arrived on the island on the orders of his country's admiralty. Hooker had known of Ascension's reputation when he landed ashore. His close friend and scientific rival, Charles Darwin, who later became the famed father of evolution, had already arrived on the island while sailing around the world conducting research for his seminal work on the origin of the species. Darwin later said the island was not smiling with beauty, but staring with naked hideousness. Yet Hooker was undaunted. He thought there might be a way to put the island to some use, so he'd agreed to take on the foolhardy task of bringing some semblance of life to one of the most barren landscapes on planet Earth. For years, Hooker explored the island, researching every divot and dune, every jagged swirl of polished igneous, every mysterious opening in the rocks where shy or malicious creatures dwelled, every pocket of sand where sea turtles deposited their wet, glossy eggs. Hooker came to know the entire island so well that he concluded there was one place, and only one place, that might be able to sustain flora on a large scale, the cloudy mountain peak in the distance. The fog hanging in the air over the mountain, Hooker determined, just might be enough to provide sustenance for plant life. He would have to ship in trees, then haul them up the mountain and plant them on the highest peak. If the trees were able to capture enough falling rainwater in their foliage, that might then sustain the soil, and the soil would in turn sustain the trees, a perpetual cycle of life, the ebb and flow of the natural world. Over the coming years, he continued the slow work of lugging tree after tree up the mountain, planting each one in precise arrangement to the others and meticulously irrigating and arranging more plants between the trees so their presence would draw in additional rainwater, hopefully forming an eventual reservoir high up in the clouds. Now, a full century later, Hooker's dream had flourished more vividly than even he could have possibly imagined. After hearing that story, R.G. walked around in a kind of trance. He felt the tree leaves with his fingertips, felt his boots sinking in the grass, smelled the dense pollen in the air as insects swarmed and birds fluttered in the canopy. If he and the rest of the hydroponics team had been unsure why they had taken this trip up to Green Mountain, at least now they knew this wasn't just a sightseeing excursion. But then what was it? A research opportunity? A form of motivation to show them what was possible? Because if so, it was hard not to feel the exact opposite. Overwhelmed, demoralized, and even a little depressed. In the next day or so, they were planning to transplant the first round of tomato seedlings out of the propagation beds, the first step of the vegetative process, and then into the plant beds, the second step. It was by far the most precarious stage of their work on the island thus far, and they'd all been working constantly and losing sleep to preserve those frail, delicate seedlings. Meanwhile, this whole time there'd been century-old trees and a fully self-sustaining ecosystem thriving atop the mountain so dense and expansive that they got tired just walking through it all. It made their own mission seem even more ludicrous, comical, even. Why couldn't they just move their seedlings up here? Why did the higher-ups demand they labored down on the rocks? If the goal was to grow enough vegetables for the island, the easy answer had been floating up in the clouds all along. When he later wrote to Agnes about the mountaintop, Argy didn't dwell on these concerns. Instead, he mentioned the species of animals that scurried all around. Rabbits, donkeys, cats, hedgehogs. Bees pollinated flowers, while tropical birds perched in the higher branches, casually observing the curvature of the horizon as they pruned their feathers with glossy beaks. They also had some sheep, which were quite nondescript, R.G. wrote. They had a lot of hogs and some very well-bred ones at that. They brought these from South Africa, I learned from the gentleman tending to them. Much to R.G.'s astonishment, they even had some cattle up here. He spotted them by a fence and at first thought he must have truly gone rock-happy himself. But there they were, grazing in the pasture. Stopping to appreciate the animals, he felt like a musician who'd stumbled upon a piano in the middle of the jungle. The only thing missing were the Herefords, he qualified. But they did have some Holsteins. And because old habits die hard, R.G. couldn't help but take note of the animals' physical attributes. Some were right good, he said. Others, not so good. I do not know where they got the livestock, but they appeared to have been here a long time. Whole generations of cattle, he realized, had likely been bred and had lived and died up here, floating above the world, not knowing they'd been up in heaven all along. Somewhere in that time, as R.G. floated with the others through the mist, he heard it was time to go. Back to the trucks, back down the winding mountain roads, back to the ash. They sat squeezed together in the trucks like hypnotized men through the jolts and rattles down the mountain. The cool mist burned away in the sunshine, and the smell of moss and new growth was replaced by the familiar dry, stony air. The truck clawed its way around the curves, going slower. The road eventually leveled off at the base of the mountain, and they were back on the barren wasteland. When they glanced back behind them, Green Mountain had once again faded into a fantasy up in the clouds. That night, after coming down from Green Mountain, R.G. left a trail of footprints in the dry ash as he made his way to the post office, footprints erased by the wind a moment later. He ducked his head as he stepped into the crowded shack that served as the island's only connection to the outside world. Inside the post office, guys stood around in uniform, all the same, all different, their heads nearly touching the ceiling. By the time R.G. had made his way to the front, the shack had refilled itself and a new batch of guys stood behind him guys who all perked up instinctively when the postman told RG he had a cable from the Red Cross. RG took the thin piece of paper without a word. He avoided eye contact with the others as he squeezed his way out and emerged into the slanted glare of late evening sunshine. Red Cross cables always held the potential for horror. Written on index cards, they relayed their messages in a precise and clerical tone. The message always abbreviated, just the bare facts. Stripped of backstory or context, tapped out in a staccato shorthand by one of the volunteers back at the Bureau. When R.G. opened the cable, the first words he saw made his body go cold. Agnes Gray. It was only when his eyes flicked over to absorb the rest of the message that he was able to breathe again. My darling, I had a report from the Red Cross that Agnes Gray was taken home from the hospital the 26th. So you have our little daughter home. I know you're all very glad to have her where you can look after her. I know she must be the sweetest little bundle ever. How much did she weigh? I hope she gets along the very best and is having the very best care ever. I'm sure she will. Needless to say, I am very anxious to know all about her. If she cries, how much? What and how often you feed her and all the many other things I would like to know about her and the most wonderful mother too. I love you both so very, very much. I hope it will be possible for you to get some pictures of our darling and her mother real soon. All my love, Bob. The days on the island were hot and brutal, but there was something different about the island at night. It wasn't just the cooling of the air or the relief of darkness. Night was a time when the ethereal qualities of the island revealed themselves. When darkness fell, the chaos of the war seemed to slumber. The tents and equipment, sandbags and communication cables, airplanes and trucks became nothing more than stage props. Delicate was not quite the right word, but there was a softness that lingered, the moonlight gently illuminating the beaches, crabs quietly skittish leaving their dotted imprints along the sand. The ocean whispered rather than raged. And during these calm and quiet hours, strange creatures emerged from the water. On the evening of February 1st, 1945, R.G. saw the weeping turtles for the first time. It happened during one of those all-night endeavors, when hundreds of men on Ascension Island came out to the beach to unload the latest arrival of ships. The ships had appeared at sunset, hulking metal skyscrapers laid horizontally over the water, glowing now in the moonlight way offshore. They were laden with supplies. Smaller boats, drifting away from the larger ones, came ashore like ambassadors, close enough for the men to wade out and unload barrels and crates from the backs. This was the way of things, as R.G. later told Agnes and he described a process that was effective solely because of the manpower used. Every able American had to take part to get the supplies unloaded before morning. None of them would sleep tonight. It wasn't long before most of the guys stripped off all their clothes and waded out fully naked. What did they care? It was the middle of the night. As R.G. watched from the beach, the men looked like sea creatures, slick and glistening silhouettes rising from the ocean their muscles taut as they heaved supplies onto the sand. R.G.'s job was to take those barrels and roll them up the beach or carry the crates that bobbed ashore. He'd already slid off his boots and socks and now moved barefoot, his pant legs rolled up, feeling the cold foam of the tide chill his ankles. Then he saw the turtles weeping in the moonlight. He'd heard about them before, of course. Everyone had. The turtles who cried in the moonlight while the island slept. It sounded like something out of a fairy tale, but there they were, right down the beach, like dinosaurs or like beasts from the Bible. With their armored bodies, the turtles could have been strangely shaped boulders were it not for the slow movements of their flippers, their long necks bending, eyes angled up to the swirls of the Milky Way. RG happened to have arrived on Ascension Island just as the rare green sea turtles' nesting season began, which would continue until late June. Groups of these turtles came ashore every night now. They were all female turtles who'd swum roughly 1,500 miles from the coast of Brazil to get to the island. As for why they had chosen Ascension Island to lay their eggs, or how they'd navigated the journey perfectly each season, none of the scientists on the island were quite sure. The best hypothesis was that the turtles were in tune with the Earth's magnetic field, guided by some invisible force. Whatever had brought them here... R.G. couldn't help but pause in his barrel rolling to watch them lumber with their flippers over the sand. The turtles were accustomed to riding swift ocean currents in the weightlessness of water. The burden of gravity upon them must have been unbearable. Their slow, ghostly movements made them appear ancient. Some of them were ancient, possibly more than 100 years old, according to what R.G. had heard, and each turtle weighed as much as 400 pounds. One by one, they would emerge from the water to nest which they did about six times during the nesting season, laying as many as 150 eggs or more a night each, up to 1,000 eggs in total. Now R.G. watched the ritual for himself. The turtles began by digging in the sand with their flippers, pausing every now and then to regain their strength. Once each turtle had carved out a large enough cavity in the sand, she turned to drop her eggs, mucus coated, into the cool depths she had molded for them. And as she laid her eggs, she wept. It was a natural occurrence. The tears flowing from the turtle's eyes were the result of glands excreting salt buildup from her body. Sea turtles don't have efficient kidneys like mammals. They need to weep to expel toxins. For them, weeping is an act of survival. If they do not cry, they die. Ocean water splashed on Argy's face as a strong wave came in, his bare chest soaking now. He grabbed another crate that crashed ashore, glancing off at the turtles as he carried it up the beach. The turtles didn't seem to notice him or the other guys at all. They stood unmoving on the dunes, gazing off at something unseen, teardrops pouring down their leathery faces. The work in the hydroponic site continued at a steady, if slow, pace. That week, the guys successfully transplanted about 3,000 tomato seedlings out of the propagation beds and into the newly carved-out plant beds, which were the second step in the vegetative cycle. The ebb and flow system they'd constructed to provide sustenance to the plants was working as designed, the nutrient solution flowing smoothly from one terrace of plant beds to another, then draining into the sump and being pumped back up the hill. No leaks, no malfunctions, no errors in the recipe of chemicals. For now, at least. As some of the guys started to hack away at the ground to build the growing beds, which would be the third and final step in the vegetative cycle, Others began diversifying their crops by planting seeds for cucumbers and lettuce in the now-empty propagation beds. Unlike traditional fields, beds of volcanic gravel need not lie fallow, but even with all the juggling of tasks, they were still months away from having anything to show for their efforts. So they were all confused when they awoke one morning that week to find the colonel was gone. He'd apparently hopped on a plane the night before and was already back in Washington, D.C., where he was giving a report to the higher-ups. A report on what, the guys wanted to know. They'd only just gotten started a month ago, and so far they didn't have a lot to show for it. The bones of their operation were in place, but the flesh, the fruit of a tomato, the cool snap of a cucumber, the crunch of lettuce, was still entirely theoretical. And even if they had somehow managed to pull ripe tomatoes out of the sky by the bushel, what difference would it make to anyone in D.C.? The guys joked that the colonel must have gone to meet the leader of the Air Force himself, General H.H. Arnold, the man who had once toured the ashen fields of the island, with his entourage who called him the chief, to give a first-hand report. No doubt General Arnold had been waking up every morning and jumping out of bed, anxious for the latest updates on their tomatoes. The aerial bombing campaign against the Germans was important, sure, but it couldn't possibly measure up against the transfer of tomato seedlings into growing beds. And now that lettuce and cucumbers were being added into the mix, surely the general was on high alert. Perhaps even Adolf Hitler himself lay awake at night, terrified by the thought of America's future arsenal of vegetables. They joked about it, but the truth was they were worried about their gardens. The temperature kept rising, pushing near past 100 degrees Fahrenheit that afternoon. The sun bore down upon them. They weren't reliant on rain or other weather conditions like traditional farmers but that didn't mean they were altogether immune from its effects. And if the days kept getting hotter, they would have a problem on their hands. My Darling I should be getting a letter soon that was written after our little darling was brought home. I am so anxious to know about her now that you have her. I hope she is getting along the very best, and I'm sure she is. We do not expect much rest for quite some time here on the rock. We've had to work at night recently, but do not anticipate much more. I hope, I hope. Most of the time when we work at night, it is unloading the boats. We worked 24 hours a day then. In the news today, they said another cold wave was really gripping the states. So it looks like you're having some more awful cold weather. I hear where they have closed schools in many cities because of the very acute coal shortages. All amusements and places of entertainment are also closed in a number of places. I sure hope you're able to get plenty of coal and the furnace is heating fine. I miss you so very, very much. All my love, Bob. While the days were often unbearably hot, nights could be surprisingly cool on the island. After dinner later that week, Argy took a walk along the path away from the tents as the tide eased in. He'd already stopped by the post office right after getting off work. Still no letters from Agnes. He assumed she was just busy now that the baby was home. She would write soon enough, or else the cold weather and harsh snowfall had held things up. For now, he breathed in the salty breeze that wafted up from the shore. It almost seemed unfair that the air should be this calm and refreshing, as if the island wanted to make amends for the sunburn that was now radiating up his neck. R.G. was on his way to the island's radio shop. He wanted to make a pit stop there before the guy who ran the place closed it up for the night. He was trying to get his old radio working again. It was one of those cheap, portable radios in a white frame, measuring 10 inches long, 7 inches wide, and 7 inches high. R.G. had made sure to note the measurements in case that was relevant for parts. He'd brought the radio with him from home and somehow hadn't managed to ding it up too bad on the journey getting here. It was Agnes, as a matter of fact, who had insisted he bring it along with him, so he felt bad having to tell her, all these weeks later, that he still hadn't been able to get it functioning. Whenever he and the guys wanted to hear the latest broadcast, they'd all been forced to cram together in the tent with Professor Blodgett to listen to the old man's personal radio, a prospect that had become less and less appealing. Having a radio of their own in the tent would go a long way to enliven their evenings. The radio shop on the island was a small building, a shack, really, occupied by a gentleman whom R.G. had gotten to know casually over the last couple of weeks. Every few days, he would stop in to see if a new shipment of electron tubes had arrived, the last part he needed to get his radio working. Of course, the one part he needed was also the one part that was almost impossible to find. Ducking his head as he stepped inside the cramped quarters of the radio shack, R.G. was hoping tonight might be the night but one look at the shopkeeper's face told him no such luck. Maybe tomorrow, the shopkeeper said. R.G. nodded and thanked him, then turned and walked back out into the cool evening air. Outside, the birds had fallen silent, resting before the chaos of the day to come, and knowing they were right, R.G. slowly made his way back to his tent. By morning, the colonel had returned from his mysterious trip to Washington, D.C. He'd appeared at breakfast as if nothing had happened, as if he'd never left, eating canned food and drinking coffee as he did every morning. The guys wanted to know what he'd been up to, but they knew not to ask. Besides, there were other, more pressing problems. When they made their way to the hydroponic site, the colonel walked alongside Professor Blodgett as they toured the terraced gardens. Barely sunrise, and already they were unbuttoning their shirts and rolling up their sleeves. The temperature was projected to rise well over 100 degrees Fahrenheit today. In the plant beds, the initial withering symptoms had already shown. The vibrant green of their tomato plants had begun fading into a dull, wilted, yellowish green, burning gradually in some invisible flame before their eyes. They hadn't anticipated such oppressive heat, and there was no magical solution to stop it. It wasn't a matter of increasing or adapting the nutrient solution, for that would only drown the plants. The sunlight and the harsh winter air were just too much for them to withstand. They needed to cool the plants off and quickly, too. So, the genius young farm boys had come up with an innovative, unprecedented, and thoroughly modern solution. Shade. That was it. That was about all they had to explain to the colonel. No fancy misting machines or feats of air-cooling engineering, nothing even close. They didn't have the time nor the resources for that. All they could do was make a shaded covering and hope that would forestall further damage, and then reassess afterwards. The colonel nodded, and so they got to work. First, they had to build scaffolding around the hydroponic site so they would have something to which they could attach the shaded covering. So they began by digging holes every few meters along the growing beds, like fence post holes. Once one hole had been dug, a guy would come up behind to pound a post deep in the ash, while the first guy went ahead to dig another hole, and the second guy followed to pound in another post. All of them bent over, backs burning. It was like building a picket fence in a sauna at record speed. They went all around, wobbling like ducks, and on and on it went while the sun rose higher, the heat intensifying. Once the poles were up, they nailed wooden beams sideways into vertical poles to create a border around the growing beds from all sides. They built it like the frame of a house. One beam was laid horizontally at ground level, then another a few feet higher, and one a few more feet above that, until the horizontal beams rose 12 feet high. The guys started by nailing beams in on their knees, ended it by nailing beams in while balancing on the tops of ladders. Next, they nailed in cloth shading strips between the beams to create flimsy walls just thick enough to block out the full extent of the sun, but with open flaps to let a healthy amount of light and air flow through. The cloth strips were made of marquisette, a fine nylon. It was already well past noon when they got started on the cloth strips, past the point in the day when the sun shone directly from above so they figured it was okay to leave the ceiling open for now. Better to get the walls up first. At least that would block the slanting sunlight of the afternoon and the next morning. But they all knew that put them up against a ticking clock, because if they didn't get the ceiling up before noon tomorrow to block out the sun at its most intense, they might as well have been building a cauldron in which their plants would boil. They had no idea if their crops could survive another day of direct sunlight. All their work might just burn away. On off nights, when they needed to clear their heads, the guys went to the movies. Usually these were the nights when they were all so exhausted that the prospect of doing just about anything else—writing letters, playing bridge, doing laundry—seemed impossible. So instead, they dragged themselves to get a glimpse of normalcy glowing in the night sky. The theater's screen was outside on a raised wooden platform. The setup wasn't very formal. Guys would sit on flimsy wooden benches or lay back on the sloped rocks— some rolling up their sleeves or taking off their shirts in the cool air, others lighting cigarettes, their smoke clouds swirling in the light of the projector, which was situated in the middle of the audience, squeezed between the rows. The guys in the back were seated higher up so they could see over it, while the guys closest to the stage sat lower so as not to block the beam of flickering, smoky light. After spending all day building the shaded covering around the sides of the hydroponic site, RG and the rest of the guys knew they wouldn't be getting much sleep tonight. They had to be up before dawn to get the ceiling over the hydroponic station up in time, but they didn't feel like being cooped up in their tent, especially since RG still hadn't gotten the part to get the radio working. And so, to take their minds off the work on the hydroponic site, they'd come here. Outside at the movie theater that night, the air was fresh with the ocean breeze. But it also carried with it the earthen stench of unshowered men and stale tobacco slowly burning, a hundred cigarette tips glowing like fireflies amidst the audience. The crashing of the waves behind them made for a soft blanket of sound, comforting now in its familiarity. More cigarettes were stubbed out, and fresh ones were slid out of soft packs, hung from cracked lips, and ignited with standard U.S. military Zippo lighters all around RG, followed by the snap of lighter lids being closed in quick succession, as the newsreel footage came on first before the main show. Newsreel clips were the only chance the guys got to actually see some of the outside world. The war news continues to look good on all fronts, R.G. later wrote to Agnes, after seeing a report that night on the advancing progress in Europe. The faster it goes and the quicker it is over, the better, he said. Back home, meanwhile, President Roosevelt had just been sworn in for a fourth term a few weeks earlier, and tonight's newsreel began with the title card, President Roosevelt Inaugurated. At the White House in Washington, crowds gather for the inauguration of Franklin D. Roosevelt as the President of the United States the newsreel narrator declared in a radio-voice bravado. Invitations admit 7,000 guests to the White House grounds. The flickering footage showed a small crowd shuffling through the snow outside the White House, while reporters dashed around them with bulky flashbulb cameras. Among the guests are wounded servicemen from nearby military hospitals. RG saw one wounded young guy being pushed in a wheelchair. Another hobbled with a cane and grinned nervously as he saw the cameras on him. Behind him was a poor guy with only one leg, who somehow maneuvered so skillfully with his crutches through the snow and ice that it looked like he'd been using them his whole life, even though he'd surely still had both of his legs just a few weeks earlier. For the first time, an inauguration is held not at the Capitol building, but here in the president's own backyard. Now in a grim year of war, the shortest and simplest inaugural on record begins. It was a brief event by design, according to the newsreel footage. There was no parade no party. Just a quick speech about America's test of courage, delivered by Roosevelt to a crowd of military and political leaders and their families, along with the young men who'd been torn to pieces on their behalf. Seeing those wounded soldiers, R.G. couldn't help but think of his old high school students. They awoke in darkness the next morning, but then it wasn't even morning yet. It was still nighttime, the fringes of the witching hour. They couldn't even get breakfast, The chow hall hadn't opened, but as they walked through the village of American tents toward the PX, they could hear the soft clanging of pans and a muddled clamor of voices rising from within the chow hall's depths. The early morning kitchen staff was doing the prep work on that day's breakfast, those half-nocturnal guys who lived in the kitchen like a submarine crew and slept while the sun burned hottest. When R.G. and the guys walked by, doors opened from the side of the building and men wearing white hats, white short-sleeved shirts, and white pants stepped out into the starlight. The kitchen men ignited cigarettes and inhaled the tobacco smoke quickly. They looked like divers gulping air after coming up from deep underwater. Just as quickly, the cigarettes were summarily extinguished, and the men dove back into the depths of the cafeteria, the light blooming and then dying as the door swung open and shut. Someone must have pulled some strings for the hydroponics team because a gift was waiting for them outside the PX this early. A huge bundle of wire. They carried it back with them to the hydroponics site, and by the light of the moon and the stars, they set up ladders and began stretching the wire beam to beam across the scaffolding they'd built the day before. Perched 12 feet above the ground on ladders, the guys called out to one another as they tossed the wire from one side of the beam to the other. They tried not to fall while grabbing for the wire as it flailed toward them in the pre-dawn chill. It was so dark they could hardly see 5 feet in front of them. Some got whipped in the face. Others fell off the ladders and landed like bags of potatoes. Despite a few lucky catches, most of the time they missed it, and the guys would have to spool it back up and try again. By the time the sun was cresting the ocean, they'd finally gotten the wire stretched over the top of the growing beds. Then came the job of sewing 38-inch canvas cloth strips of Marquisette to the wire, creating long strips of shade over the plant beds. For whatever reason... This morning just so happened to be the windiest it'd been in weeks. The shade is fifteen feet wide, RG later wrote Agnes, and it is quite a lot to handle that and sew with some wind. We were all perched twelve feet up in the air, as we have to sew it into the wires up high above. He didn't even know if she were receiving his letters anymore, let alone reading them. But that morning, as he was sewing strips of fabric flaps together while balancing on top of a ladder in the wind, he thought about her a lot. As a master seamstress, Agnes probably would have had some withering critiques to make about his sewing abilities, and he would have given anything to hear her comment on his dubious cross stitches and loops, if only to hear her voice again. But since they were on their own, the guys kept on sewing as best they could. They pricked their fingers in the half dark and messed up their stitching. They struggled to get the job done in time, already dehydrated and slow, sweating, tired from standing up so high, their arms moving languidly under the rising sun repeating the same motions over and over. By noon, they looked like shipwrecked pirates, woozy and sunburnt as they staggered off to salvage some lunch. My darling. Another mail and no letter from the one I love so very much. If I could only get a little short note to the effect that my darlings are getting along fine, then it would be fine. I know you do not have time to write, but just a very short note would help an awful lot. I hope the weather is much warmer there by this time. I've not heard or seen a weather report recently. The last one told of more large snows in the east. A good warm snow is not so bad, but I hope it has not been so cold. The project has been going a little better, but we still have a long way to go. If you'd only hear and see some of the things that go on in this tent as I write, it really is quite a show at times. Bill is over in bed giving Buckley, Kurt, and myself a quiz out of the My Little Dictionary, state flowers, nicknames, populations, etc., I did not know it contained such a variety of information. We are all a bit that way with exhaustion and maybe heat stroke ourselves. It is now about time for a little shut-eye. So, for now, good night, my darling. All my love, Bob. By the time Valentine's Day arrived, R.G. had started worrying again. Still no word from Agnes. Too long now. I hope my two little Valentines are the very, very best, and you are both getting along the best possible he wrote to her on Valentine's Day evening. He told her how much he would like to be delivering his Valentine's greeting in person, how happy he would be when the day finally rolled around that he could see her again. It has been so long since I left you, he wrote. That sweet little Agnes Gray has the best mama in all the land. She has been unfortunate in her early arrival, but in selecting you for her mother, she is the most fortunate of all. R.G. held his pen over the page, pausing a moment, before writing, I need to know so badly how you are getting along. He was already exhausted. He'd spent all morning and afternoon of Valentine's Day on culture duty, which meant he was tasked with maintaining the plants, pruning leaves, keeping out weeds and pests, and otherwise being a steward over their young crops, a job that had gained an added layer of intensity with the heat still rising over 100 degrees Fahrenheit that day. They'd gotten some shade up in time, but the work didn't stop. The guys always switched roles so no one got too burnt out on one job. There was also construction duty for carving and fortifying new beds for the next round of crops, supervising duty for managing the work of the team as a whole, and wheelbarrow operations, which basically meant hauling around materials in wheelbarrows in the hot sun all day long. Everyone hated wheelbarrow operations. By sunset, they were all worn down from the long hours in the heat, but no one felt like going to bed. Something about it being Valentine's Day cast a gloomy pallor over the evening. They all wanted to be back home with their wives and girlfriends, not stuck on this island, certainly not in this sweaty and smelly assemblage inside a tent without even a radio of their own to listen to. They couldn't change their circumstances, but they could at least get out of their tent and get some fresh air. Buckley and Kurt suggested they head out to the rocks to go fishing, and neither R.G. nor Bill could think of a reason not to. They left the tent and wandered off toward the cliffside with borrowed reels and rods, the stars pooling overhead. When they reached the beach, they spotted another group of mother turtles off near the shore. R.G. had never seen so many up close. Just a few meters away, he could recognize the swirled calligraphy of their shells in the moonlight and the unique spots of black skin on their faces and flippers, patterned like rough continents on a plaster globe. The turtles seemed to glow in the dark, green as seaweed, unearthly and surreal. They were brushing their flippers over the sand as the guys approached, laying their eggs in the darkness. It was a most interesting sight to see the turtles dig the holes and lay their eggs, RG later wrote. They dig one large hole about three feet deep, and then a small one in the large one about 18 inches deeper, and lay their eggs in the little hole and cover them up with sand. They may lay from one hundred to several hundred, so they say. In a few months, those eggs would hatch, and hundreds of baby green sea turtles would climb over the dunes of sand toward the water. But R.G. knew those hatchlings would face a cruel world. Birds, donkeys, rats, sharp-toothed fish, and other predators awaited them. The odds were grim. Out of every 1,000 baby sea turtles born on this beach, only one would likely survive into adulthood. For all the effort of the weeping mother turtle he now watched digging her flippers into the sand. She would be lucky if just one of her offspring lived long enough to return to this island one day to continue the cycle. Giving the mothers their privacy, the guys kept walking toward the cliffs. Foamy waves lapped over the sand and the sky sparkled above their heads as they carried their rods and moved up the jumble of sloped rocks. R.G. wasn't much of a fisherman, but as he slid off his boots and socks, sat down with the others looking out over the dark ocean on the cliff's edge, steadied his rod and cast his line out into the blackness of the water below, he found it relaxed him. He felt the spray of the ocean mist on his bare toes, and the stars were remarkably luminescent. In that moment, he let himself be present. And when he felt a tug on his line later on, he reacted instinctively. He pulled up hard, and for those few wondrous seconds of exertion and focus, he wasn't worried about Agnes and the baby. His thoughts were only on what was before him. He reeled and kept reeling, and out of the water emerged a dripping rock cod, bright orange like a wedge of sunlight, which flipped and dangled in the ocean mist, its scales glowing in the dark. The following morning, in a letter to Agnes, R.G. wrote the closest thing to a poem he would ever write. It really was beautiful out there, with the moonlight on the sea. And as always, I wish you could have been there, enjoying it with me. Then came the hot days, the cruel days, when every new sunrise brought another enemy upon them. First, it was a swarm of thrips, an insect shaped like okra that is so small, each could have been a moat of sand. But this sand sucked the juices from their plants and scraped the leaves, leaving them twisted, discolored, and scarred, black splotches like coffee stains, brown smudges as though touched by flame, When the guys spotted them crocheting their patterns of destruction upon the seedlings, they swatted at them, and a cloud-like dust from an old quilt whooshed up into the air, dissipating in the heat before landing somewhere else, nearly invisible once descended. Then came leaf rollers, a munching menace of a caterpillar, followed by tomato hornworms, creepy green creatures that glowed in the dark as they devoured leaves at an astonishing pace. Lastly, and most deviously, were the mice— or what they had thought were mice, before the far more sinister culprit revealed itself. But in the first few days, mice seemed the only answer, for they had found plant after plant had been devoured at the base, chewed down as if by gnawing teeth. The guys set up mouse traps with hunks of cheese all over the hydroponic site, expecting to find them all snapped by dawn, with dozens of limp mice clenched in their maws. But no. When they entered the site that morning, all the traps were empty, the cheese gone. They scratched their heads over this. It made sense that one or two especially nimble mice could have snagged the cheese and lived to tell about it, but for all the traps to be empty? They tested the traps to see if they were working properly. They were. Then reset them with fresh cheese. Perhaps it had just been a fluke? But the next morning, the same. The cheese gone, the traps undisturbed. Meanwhile, the plants were still being eaten a nice salad paired with the cheese the guys had offered up. If these really were mice, they had to be just about the most skillful and devious mice in the world. It took until the end of the week, after days and nights during which the guys had conducted the only form of reconnaissance they would ever do during the war, before they discovered the true culprit was a foe far sneakier than mice. Giant mole crickets. One of the guys had found one nibbling at the plants early one morning by chance, a gluttonous holdout who luckily gave away his entire battalion. These mole crickets were ghastly creatures, the size of small rats, large enough to fill a man's palm, with big black bulbous heads, pincers, and long slithering antenna. They'd been emerging at night and perching themselves on the cheese and devouring it beneath them without even setting off the trap, before bouncing on to feast on the plants. The guys sprayed the gardens with cricket-killing pesticides, and they didn't feel one bit bad about all the giant cricket carcasses layering the floor of the hydroponic station, saying good riddance as they swept them up. The bags of dead crickets were so stuffed it was like carrying sacks of flour. But even with the invading insects defeated, the problem became keeping new swarms out. Exhausted as they were from sowing the canopy to block out the sun, as cramped and sore as their fingers were, now they had to build a new protective barrier to keep out the pests. We formed ourselves a sewing circle, sewing 800 feet of mosquito netting, R.G. wrote. We are all perched 12 feet up in the air, as we have to sew it into the wires up high above. The mosquito netting was the final barrier, a true shield all around. Once they had tied the netting on all sides of the wooden beamed compound, over the cloth strips of shade and above as well, weaving it into the wiring on the ceiling, even covering the flaps for air, the netting breathable enough to let the breeze through, the place truly became a functioning greenhouse. The only remaining enemy was their own foolishness. Later that week, just when they were certain everything was under control, when the shade was secure, the mosquito netting taut, and the pests kept at bay, all the plants began yellowing, fading, the leaves turning brittle like old newspaper. It happened so quickly, the guys could literally watch as the plants curled and died before their very eyes, like sped-up movie footage. This was clearly no outside enemy. From the first terrace to the last, all the plants were suffering the same fate. And for every single plant to be affected at the same time, it could only mean one thing toxic poisoning. It had been their greatest fear from the start. They must have somehow made a mistake in the nutrient solution. Given how interconnected the system was, if they didn't find the problem and solve it quickly, all their work would die within the hour. They scrambled yelling at each other, reviewing the chemicals, and running back and forth until they found the mistake. Someone had added calcium chloride instead of calcium sulfate in the mixture, a mistake as deadly as mixing up powdered arsenic with powdered sugar in a birthday cake. The poison was already in the gardens. It wasn't a matter of simply shutting off the flow of the solution. They had to flush out the system entirely. That was the only way to save the plants, but they didn't have an automated process for making that happen. So they reacted like a bucket brigade at a fire department, rushing to and from the public water area with sloshing buckets of water and dumping them through the beds to leach out the poison. Back and forth they went, shirtless and dazed, like Looney Tunes firemen. And this went on for hours. For anyone watching from afar, it would have been no stretch to assume the boys of the hydroponics team had finally lost their minds. My darling... No mail again. I know you are so very busy, and if you ever have the time, I guess you are too tired. If I could only get a little note once in a while, it would not be quite so bad, but when it goes for days and days and not even a note, how can I help but be worried a bit or more? I had a letter from Mama, and she said you had called her a week ago tonight, and you both were fine, and that the sweetie was continuing to gain. I'm glad to get some indirect word that you are okay and that our baby girl is gaining... "'but I would like very much to get some news a little more direct. "'You have no doubt written me several times, "'and they have just been delayed. "'I know you are so very busy, "'but I hope you realize how much I love you "'and how much it means to hear "'that you and our little girl are all right. "'It has been weeks since you wrote the last letter I received. "'Mama said they had the coldest weather of the winter last week "'and that the water pipes froze at the farm. "'I sure hope it wasn't so bad up your way, "'but I fear it must have been. "'All my love.' Bob. Another cool night on the island. RG wore long sleeves as he left the tent. The other guys were off at the movie theater, trying to take their minds off the chaos of the day that had just ensued. For now, it looked as though the plants would survive. With their buckets of water, they'd successfully leached the chemicals out of the beds and had set up a new batch of nutrient solution. Some of the plants had died, of course, but most were recovering. It was still far too close a call for any of them to rest easy. Better to go to the movies and try not to think about it. Tonight's showing at the theater was Keys of the Kingdom, starring Gregory Peck. R.G., though, wasn't in the mood to sit through a full feature film. Besides, he wanted to make another stop by the island's radio shop to see if a batch of new electron tubes had finally arrived. But when he stepped into the shop, it was quickly clear tonight would be like every other night. No new shipment, the shopkeeper telling him to check back in next week. R.G. left the shop and walked around the base. There was still a lot of night left, and he felt restless, but he didn't want to head to the movie theater, and there was no point in stopping by the post office. He'd already been before dinner, no letter from Agnes, once again. He walked around for a while, but eventually surrendered and just went back to his tent, where he fiddled some more with the little white radio as he waited for the other guys to come back from the movie. Old newspapers and magazines were scattered around the tent. Some were lying open on his tentmates' cods from where they'd been tossed casually as the guys were heading out. Whenever R.G. read through those magazines, it was impossible to know if things had changed in the days it had taken for them to arrive, testaments of the world as it had been days or even weeks earlier. The same was true when it came to news of his family. R.G. knew a radio wouldn't solve that problem. Even if he had live broadcasts of the most up-to-date news from around the world, it still wouldn't expedite the delay in the news that truly mattered to him. It wouldn't do anything about Agnes's long silences, or his family's refusal to speak on her behalf. It wouldn't relieve him of the fear, the dread-inducing sensation like a ghost at his back, that something horrible might have happened. But at least it would give him something else to listen to beside his own thoughts. He slid on his tasseled moccasins, lying back on his cot, and reached over to the side table for his stationery box. Flipping it open, he looked at the photo of Agnes he'd pinned to the lid, what he saw whenever he wrote a letter. It was his favorite photo of her. The pride of my snapshot collection, he would told her. In the photo, Agnes is wearing RG's flight jacket, the sleeves and shoulders looking massive on her tiny frame. She's standing on a hilltop in Watauga with the farm in the background, during the only time they'd gotten back there for a trip since he'd been drafted. The sun shines on her face, her hair radiant. Every time he looked at that photo, RG tried to make the scene come true again. To be there, and not here. Later that night, he took out a piece of stationary paper, picked up a pen, and wrote, "'My darling, I'm sorry I was rather impatient "'in my letter yesterday about not having heard from you in so long. "'I know you must be having an awful hard time, "'but I needed so very badly to hear from you. "'This thing of being so far away and out of touch with my babies "'is certainly no fun. "'I miss you so very much. "'I love you so very, very much.'" By the time March arrived... The work in the hydroponic station had begun to settle down. Early one morning, R.G. went to the island's clothing and equipment shop, where he got to work on that day's assignment. His job was to man the foot-operated sewing machine, stitching pieces of burlap together. If I keep up with my sewing activities, I should be a good housekeeping husband on my return, he later wrote. I sewed all day, Saturday, and today. We are covering the propagation beds with burlap to avoid any excess evaporation. It wasn't the most scientific of methods, but they had to get creative when it came to the never-ending fight against the heat. They cut narrow slits in the burlap so the plants could sprout through them, their leaves stretching out in the fresh air, but still retaining their bed of moisture below. It was required with weather this brutal. The temperature rose again above 100 degrees today, he wrote. Despite the heat, despite the pests and their own mix-ups with the chemical solution, the work over the last few weeks seemed to have done the job. The vegetables are growing fine now, R.G. wrote. Some tomatoes have even bloomed, and some little tomatoes appeared. They are larger than eggs. Should have full tomatoes in another 40 to 50 days. One afternoon that week, the men of the hydroponics team stepped back and realized there was nothing more for them to do today. The tomatoes and other vegetables were protected by the shade with proper ventilation to keep them cool, the liquid solution was flowing smoothly, the burlap was keeping them hydrated, and the pests were kept at bay. Shockingly, they weren't sure what to do. The day before, the colonel had flown back to the States again for one of his mysterious trips, which meant Professor Blodgett was their de facto leader. Now the old man was giving them orders about how they should spend the rest of their day. It was important to stay focused, the professor told them. They should all get together to study and review the plans for the coming weeks. Never mind that they'd been up before dawn most days and had worked well after sunset for weeks. Meanwhile... The professor said he had other things to take care of. No doubt lying around in his tent, the guys assumed, the old man fiddling with his textbooks or writing letters. They watched him walk off as they tidied up the hydroponics site. In a way, the professor had a point. It was true they should take advantage of the free time. What with how busy the hydroponics team had been, they'd all fallen behind on laundry, replying to letters, cleaning up their tent, doing other chores, and catching up on the latest news. A full afternoon off would be just what they needed to get their routines back on track. So they decided to do the mature and responsible thing. They went golfing. Everyone on the island called it the world's worst golf course, and it wasn't hard to see why. Not that they were expecting lush green fairways or glistening ponds from which gators emerged dripping wet. Or even actual grass, for that matter. But up close, the course was a nightmare. They'd borrowed clubs and balls, passed by British Georgetown, and arrived at the start of the course that was run by the quiet British folks on the island. Though even calling it a golf course was pushing it. The first tee was set up on a raised gravel platform that looked out over a rolling terrain of sand, dirt, rocks, and sparse shrubs, the kind of plant life you'd find only in a desert. A typical golf course might feature hazards and sand bunkers placed in deliberate spots on each hole but the course of Ascension Island was just one giant hazard altogether. R.G. lined up his shot, gripping a dented driver in his hands. Stretching before him was a fairway, if it could even be called a fairway, and far off in the distance was the green, which was, no surprise, not green at all. The guys on the island actually called them browns, because they were made of crushed lava smoothed flat with diesel oil. Between the tee and the green was nothing but black volcanic pits of ash, small caves, rocks, and other ancient debris from the island's geological history. The same unforgiving terrain the dehydrated castaways on the island would have seen in their last horrible moments hundreds of years ago. And now, here Argy was, playing golf on it. He did a few practice swings, the club in his hands, looking like it would seen some horror stories in its day. Every bit of it was scratched, scuffed, and covered in war wounds. As a mountain boy who'd hardly played a round of golf in his life... He felt bad knowing he was only going to add to this poor club's misery. Focusing, R.G. lined up his shot once again, swung hard, and then felt the ball pelt off his club head with an unsatisfying ping. He cupped a palm over his eyes in the sun and watched the ball go rolling low over the ground, bouncing along across the fairway, ramping over divots and dunes and rocks, before coming to a stop halfway down the fairway. All in all, not a bad shot. Once everyone else had teed off, they trekked forward. In the hazy tropical light, the strange rock formations scattered all over the fairway resembled abstract statues from a modern art museum. A surreal diorama set against a backdrop of blurry black mountains. Blobs of frozen lava. Dead cactus lying sideways like roadkill. Holes with seemingly no bottom. Not to mention the countless piles of donkey manure. They ought to be careful where they walked because the stinky, mushy brown stuff was everywhere on the course. So were the donkeys themselves, who strolled around kicking up the dust, looking utterly bored and undaunted by the prospect of guys playing horrible golf around them. Somehow, though, RG managed to play pretty well, shooting 44 on 9 holes. Granted, it was basically a par 3 course, and they made frequent use of mulligans, but still, not too bad for a mountain boy. I had a fair score. R.G. later wrote to Agnes. If he could have called her on the phone, he would have told her the whole story about the world's worst golf course, the donkeys roaming around, the strange rock formations, the golf balls lost in the splits and caverns in the rocks, the wobbly shots and lucky putts, the planes roaring overhead as they glided onto the airfield. But talking on the phone was impossible, and he wasn't even sure if she were reading his letters anymore. Even on the golf course, his thoughts were always with her, And living within this long silence, he was starting to fall apart. That night, with Agnes' glowing photo staring back at him from the lid of his stationery box, R.G. wrote, My beloved, I know you have been so very, very busy, and have been so tired and felt so badly that you have not been able to get half the letters written you would like to. Then I come along and am not half as considerate as I should be. I am so sorry about those implications I make about those no-letter days. It is just the fact that I get a little on the blue side and I miss them so very, very much. Life is none too pleasant on the rock at best, and it is not hard to get a little down at times. The days are so long and lonesome. I guess you have noticed that I even feel better when no mail comes in than I do when we have a mail, and especially for some days, and I do not hear from you. I love you so very, very much and miss you so terribly. I hope you will kind of understand and see how I feel and not be too hard with your old man. Today was another one of those days with mail, but none for me. I know that a lot of the time the letters are delayed in the mail, and there is certainly nothing you can do about that. If and when the time comes when you have a little more time and feel like writing, I will certainly be very happy for many reasons. First and foremost, of all those reasons, that you feel better. Take the very best care of you and our little girl. Good night, my darling. All my love, Bob. For as small as it was, there was no shortage of wonders to be found on the island. Some of the guys on Ascension Island talked about the rock as if it were a magical place. It was something R.G. had heard during his first few days on the island, something he'd kept on hearing ever since. Usually, it was the guys who'd been on the island the longest who spoke this way. Men whose stints on the rock were measured not in months, but in years. With their deep tans and sun-bleached hair, they looked transformed. Transformed. Guys who had been living in tents so long that the notion of a house had begun to seem entirely foreign to them. Individuals and groups whose natural rhythms had become entwined with the rhythms of the waves on the beach, the sloshing of the ocean foam. These were the guys who regarded the island with a kind of spiritual reverence. The island giveth, the island taketh. R.G. was told to just wait and see. Sooner or later, the island would reveal itself to him. Of course, Most guys just ignored that kind of talk, calling it nothing but rock-happy delusions, sun-dazed nonsense. The island was like any other island, they said, a natural formation of rock that harbored no secrets nor intentions, no spiritual identity nor concern. Every phenomenon one could experience on Ascension Island, the floating rain, the fantasy of green mountain in the distance, or the nocturnal rituals of the rare green sea turtles, had a perfectly rational and natural explanation. To invest any faith in a hunk of dead rock in the middle of the ocean would have not only been idolatry, it would have been foolish. That was the way of things, as R.G. liked to say. But sometimes even the most practical of men could find themselves pausing, find themselves wondering. In late March of 1945, R.G. and the rest of the Americans on Ascension Island experienced such a moment. The night had begun with a stroke of personal good fortune. The radio shop had finally gotten a fresh batch of electron tubes in stock, and by chance, R.G. happened to snag one of the last ones just after getting off work for the day. Back in the tent, all the guys circled around him as he opened the body of the radio, carefully snapping the electron tube in place. R.G. fiddled with some wires, checking to make sure everything was in order. Then he snapped the back of the radio in and set it upright. He turned the knob, adjusting the antenna, but then... nothing dead silence. The only sound in the tent was their own breathing, and the roil of surf coming far off the beach. R.G. reopened the back of the radio with a soft crack. He pressed the tube in tighter, repositioned some wires, and as he was giving the box one more run-through, suddenly a soft fuzz of static began to emerge from the speaker, pressed as it was face-down on the table. Everyone leaned back. Carefully, R.G. set the radio upright. The volume rose unsmothered. It was only static at first, and he waited a few more seconds, before delicately adjusting the antenna. The guys waited in silence around him. With one last adjustment, R.G. turned the dial, and all at once a faint hum poured from the speaker, like water flowing through a suddenly unclogged pipe. Music. They heard violins, gentle as birds, coasting in the sky. And piano notes, like raindrops, splattering upon a roof. Then a voice warm and close rising as if from a memory night and day you are the one and that's when RG froze the other guys around him could have been cheering and slapping him on the back for finally getting the radio working he wouldn't have felt it wouldn't have even heard it he couldn't move at all could barely breathe he sat like a statue trying to wrap his mind around it what are the odds he thought Of all the songs in the world, of all the places he could have been, of all the broadcasts and of all the times he could have gotten the radio working, how could it possibly be this song, their song, that first came through the speakers? The very same song he and Agnes had danced along to countless times in the living room of the brick house on the farm all those years ago. Only you, neath the moon, are under the stars. Now, as Frank Sinatra's voice filled the tent, It seemed to pour around R.G. like ocean water and lift him up in a biblical tide. Lift him right through the tent ceiling and high above the American base camp. Above the beach and the airfield. Above the radio tower. And higher even than Green Mountain with its coiled foliage and damp silence. Its misty fields. Its glossy birds and sleeping cattle. And then gently placed R.G. back down in the mountains of his birth. Back in the brick house on the farm on a warm summer night all those years ago when the windows were open, the smell of the fields lathering the air as moonlight glowed through the curtains. It's no matter, darling, where you are. The feel of Agnes's cheek pressed against his chest, her hand in his hand. I think of you, day and night, night and day. And R.G. would have gladly stayed there in his mind, holding Agnes in his arms again, swaying to the music in a place untouched by war, with a love unburdened by distance. Had someone not started screaming outside their tent? R.G. shut off the radio. Then they all froze, waiting for what came next. Silence now, as all the guys leaned over the edges of their cots. No one inside the tent said a word. They just waited. Now the screaming began again. Louder this time. Urgent. Yelling. Voices rising. From the beach they realized. And below the screaming, they could hear the rustle of men running, the scrape of boots on rocks. Murmurs now from the tents around them. Lanterns shut off, the whisper of bodies rushing through tent flaps. The island hadn't been attacked by U-boats in more than a year, but it was possible. RG, Buckley, Kurt, and Bill all looked at each other. Then, without a word, they rushed out into the night air. The time was exactly 10:12 p.m. R.G. knew that because he'd glanced at his watch as he ran out with all the others, and he would make sure to remember that detail, to make a note in his mind. Because he wanted to have all the facts of this evening correct. He wanted to make sure he didn't miss anything, to explain in the fullest extent that what he'd seen that night, glowing over the ocean, was real. That he'd seen it with his own eyes. They all had. The guys crested the dunes and came to a stop on the beach, where they beheld the sky glowing and pulsing with light. A rainbow, R.G. later wrote. A rainbow at night. Hundreds more were pouring out of their tents, all yelling and screaming now for others to come and look. The colors of the rainbow were tinged blue, but it was as clear as any rainbow R.G. had ever seen. It floated silkily over the ocean in the black sky like a radiant ghost. The whole island came out to see it, even the turtles. Farther down the beach, mother sea turtles were lined up over the sand, their shells gleaming under the dreamy light of the lunar rainbow, their eyes glistening with salty tears. Once the yelling had quieted down, the only sound was the soft slosh of the waves over the sand. Men didn't even think to light cigarettes. Some took off the hats they'd been wearing, out of reverence. Others prayed. The rainbow glowed as if painted by angels, It didn't seem real. It couldn't possibly be real. R.G., like so many others, was totally silent, trying to square what he was seeing with the physical limits of reality. Now, do not say I must be tipsy, he later wrote Agnes. We all saw it, and it is certainly very unusual. Lit by moonlight. The first time any of us have seen anything like it. I have never heard before of such a thing being possible. Later that week, when a letter from Agnes finally arrived on the island in response. It was hard not to regard this night on the beach as a turning point, the moment when the rising tide of his life fell back, when the harsh waters of the last few months finally calmed. R.G. was not the type to believe in the superstitions some held about the island, but even though he could later search through a textbook to find the rare accounts of rainbows appearing at night throughout history, or consult a meteorologist to learn the exceedingly unusual, but not impossible, combination of rainfall, the moon's angle in orbit, and light refraction required to create a lunar rainbow. It still wouldn't change the awe he'd felt as he'd stood there on that beach, all the silent men and sobbing turtles around him, gazing up at those gleaming brushstrokes painted across the night sky.